0: The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. Good morning. You're listening as she says with KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh of the April 10th, 2012 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, it's a long-awaited program I've been wanting to bring to you. I want to make sure you students were well-situated back from your spring break to hear this all-important content today. We'll start with a pre-recorded interview I did some months ago with Dr. Leonard Sender, an oncologist specializing in the practice of treating cancer patients, uh, that is, adolescents and young adults. Then in the second half of the program, I'm going to have three lovely, enlightened, gracious, courageous people. That is Natalie Burgess, Betty Becky Tejera, and Angelo Giuliani, who are gonna talk about their surviving, in this order, um, colon cancer, breast cancer, and Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Be right back, we don't have much time to waste. To ask a leader, my guest in this portion of the program is Dr. Leonard Sender, director of the combined adolescent and young adult cancer program at UCI and Chalk Children's Hospital. He um, is an uh, an expert, uh, in leading expert on disorders of the blood and lymphatic system, such as leukemia and lymphoma. His medical medical training was in University Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. He's advancing the care of adolescents and young adults who are stricken with cancer. This particular aspect is the focus of this interview today. Welcome, Dr. Sender.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on your show and allowing me to talk about our program.
0: It's a very important one, especially as we see, at least in the present, more than 72 Thousand adolescent and young adults are diagnosed with cancer every year. Do you have any idea what to what we would attribute this rate? Well,
1: although we have 70,000, um, it needs to be put in context about what actually is known about cancer in the United States. Uh, in 2011, um, approximately 1.6 million People will be diagnosed with cancer. Uh, there are about ten or twelve thousand children diagnosed with cancer under the age of fifteen, and then there's another seventy thousand. So, every everyone who's diagnosed is a tragedy and a, and a you know life-changing event. Um, but it isn't a massive number. The number hasn't markedly increased. It, it's increased a little bit, but in reality. Uh, we don't know what causes most of the cancers that occur in this age group. It's not they don't fit into that cancer prevention model that we know about in adult medicine. So if we stop people smoking or we stop people drinking excessively, we won't change these cancer rates. So the 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 long answer to a short question is we don't know what causes cancers in this group and therefore we can't really understand at this time. If there is an increase, what does that really mean?
0: I guess it's, uh, and on the, the National Cancer Institute websites, they enumerate those particular ones, incidences, the, high, the common types being lymphoma, leukemia, germ cell tumors, that says including testicular cancer, melanoma, central nervous system, tumor sarcomas, breast, cervical, liver, thyroid, and colorectal cancers. Is, is that, okay, so.
1: So, but, so if you think about that list you just gave me, that list doesn't include most of what happens in our adult patient population. Uh-huh. So in adult cancers at the Child Comprehensive Cancer Center at UCI and at every major cancer center, lung cancer, prostate cancer, colorectal cancer, and breast cancer make up three-quarters of that you know, 1.6 million people who have cancer. In, in this age group, the cancers that we see are those rare cancers it is much more, it's skewed. There are some that peak absolutely in that age group. Um, so the, you talked about germ cell tumors. Well, another fancy word for that, Please. if you want to bring it down, is, is testicular cancer. Okay. You know? and, and in a young woman, it's ovarian cancer, not the ovarian cancer that you hear about in the old adult. This is an ovarian cancer that is closely pro- approximating what we see in the testicular cancer, Testicular cancer, the classic young adult person who got that was Lance Armstrong. And, you know, um, it it occurs, and its peak is right in that age group, what I call my adolescent and young adult, which in this country is defined as 15 years of age to 39 years of age. So thyroid cancer, very common in young adult breast, a young adult woman, Uh, again, in our perfect age group. Why does that happen? Why has that been going up? Not clear melanoma 25 percent of all melanomas occur under the age of 40 occurring and actually quite a common cancer between age 15 and 21 most people have never heard of it in that young person and in fact most of the time they missed because no one thinks about "Wow, you got these cancers sarcoma is very rare in the older adult especially the type that happened in this young adult group it's called ewing sarcoma and osteogenic those are cancers of bone and sometimes the tissue around the bone those cancers not not really seen in the older adult patient population. So what we really have is this new idea that cancers that occur um, may be really age related. That you get the classic cancers that we call pediatric cancers, which is when we're closer to our embryo state. You know, you've just been born. They do what we call developmental changes. So some of the cancers we see in pediatrics are related to embryology think of development the baby starts of a baby and becomes Uh this adult Mm -hmm. that we are so some of those changes occur things can go wrong in the genes related to that then you've got this teenage young adult adolescent young adult 15
0: to 39 where the thyroid's active and thyroid and and
1: you're growing really fast you've got rapid growth so we've got these weird cancers coming out at that time Then you get into the age 40 to, you know, your late 60s, which is sort of standard adult medicine. And then actually there's a new field coming out, which is called gerontology, which is all about older aging population. And thank God, you know, with the boomers, we're learning that people don't drop dead at 65. And we've seen cancers in people in the 80s and 90s, and that's geriatric cancer. So I actually, I believe that when we use the word cancer, we actually confuse the pu- The public, and that's why the public is always frustrated at us because we haven't explained well enough to them that cancers is not one thing it is um it is it's a name that collectively gets everything. so I like to think of it sometimes and explain to families is it's a little bit like um, how you think of buying a car in 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 nineteen hundred and ten. The, you know, there was only the Henry Ford who had one color car, and it was a black Model T, and that's the only one you could get. So when you talked about a car, that's the car you talked about. Well, think about how many hundreds of cars we have. You know, got major manufacturers from Cadillac to Hyundai to Toyota to Mercedes to Chrysler, and each of them has a stable of different cars in it. That's what cancer's like. So when we always say, "Can we cure cancer?" Is it the Chrysler? Is it the small one? Is it the big Cadillac? Is it the SUV Cadillac? Is it the sports Cadillac? Is it the Mercedes? And I know that sounds simplistic, but in reality, that's the frustration we have created because we as a medical profession haven't always explained to everyone that actually it's a lot more complicated and that in some cancers, we've had great responses. So in testicular cancer, the ovarian germ cell tumor, which is the the female equivalent of testicular cancer, survival rates now in the ninety percent range. Yeah. Thyroid cancer in the ninety percent range, and then we've got those ones that it is really, you know, we've had no advances made. Um, the thing that why I got interested and in why we created the program at uh, UC Irvine was this group was sort of forgotten about they don't fit in. If you if you're doing medicine and you think about the population, there's this large population where the big numbers are and people forget that um the seventy thousand exist. So they often got called that they 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 were they were lost. They were the lost generation. They got lost in the in the gap and they fell through the cracks. And when we analyzed it we showed, you know, there were advances in the older adult patient population, there were advances in pediatrics But this group often was plateauing. We haven't made those great advances. Yes, we we, we get high marks because our testiculars do well and some of our Hodgkins do well and some of those thyroid do well. But, boy, we forget about, you know, these other ones that are very, very important to us. Um, And that's what our goal was. Can we create a program at UC Irvine that could look and say, you know what, we want to take these young adults really seriously. We want to understand not only the biology of what their cancer is and why it's happening, but also we want to understand the patient. And when you're a cancer doctor, you realize you don't just treat the biology. You treat the person, and that person belongs to a family, and that family belongs to a community, and that community belongs to a bigger community. We wanted to understand that young adult, what it means from, what are the issues that young people who face with cancer have as different to paediatrics, So pediatrics, if a kid comes in, they've got a parent, they've got parents, they've got grandparents, a very supportive community around kids. You know, that's how society works. I mean, we protect kids, or we should protect kids. But this young adult is sort of, you know, they're becoming independent of their parents, but they're not yet well-established in the community. If it hits them when they're in college, their friends are at college, they go back to living with, at home with their parents, where are they? Um, if they've graduated from college and they're just starting their career in, in business, you know, they don't, they're not, they don't have the roots that are there. So there's this whole social and psychological aspect. Then this is the age where you're going to have children, this adolescent young adult, hopefully not 15-year-olds and hopefully not 18-year-olds, but really between 21 and 40 is the average age when people start thinking about having children. Well, It makes a big difference in how you think about these cancers because the 60-year-old doesn't think about having children anymore. The 50-year-old doesn't think about it. But if you're 24 and you're a woman, have we actually now created a way that we've destroyed your ability to have children? So we've, you know, that we're very engaged in something called fertility preservation. It means thinking about it. So one of the things that we take in our program, we're very proud of, is we say survivorship starts on day 1 the day you're diagnosed with cancer we that's when we should be thinking about your your survivorship because we're going to try and cure you our goal is absolutely to try and cure you bring the best science to bear to try and cure you but then think about survivorship what do we need to do to make sure you survive and that means thinking about all these other issues and there are lots of issues. There's relationships issues.
0: Well, before yeah. Dr. Sender, before we go uh, to those issues, um, and you're 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 running the whole interview all on your own here. I'm, but I wanted for those who've just joined us, we're hearing from Dr. Leonard Sender, director of combined adolescent and young adult cancer program at UCI and the Chalk Children's Hospital here on KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI org. So you were looking at the those very uh, issues of uh, different um, sorts of body systems here that um, they're surviving that that need to be sustained.
1: Right. Um, yeah. So what we're looking at is we wanted to create a. We think we've got one of the most comprehensive young adult cancer programs in the country because we look at all the cancers that affect that age group, yes. and we talk to everyone of the stakeholders in it. So we have a group that works with our breast cancer. So our breast cancer surgeon, Dr. Karen Lane, is fantastic to work with in terms of understanding the young adult cancer patient. So we focus on what's the difference between that young adult or that premenopausal patient. Our hematology oncology group, the medical oncologist, we work with that leukemic you know, what's it mean to be a leukemia patient, 22 or 26 or 28 or 30 years of age lymphoma. So each disease group, we have gone in and and basically I've gone, I'm the Don Quixote. I'm the yes. guy sort of tilting at the windmill. My goal, and uh, I'm blessed to have colleagues like I have at UCI who have been able to, to embrace it. So when we talk to the gynecologist, oncologist who say, What's it like for a young woman to have cervical cancer and have therapy or potentially lose her cervix or to have radiation to that area? What's it mean to her? How can we do it? So each disease we've taken on and comprehensively done it. We've done melanoma. Dr. Jim Jackowitz, who works with me in the melanoma in the young adult patient population, Uh, Dr. Bang Ong, who helps us with our tumors of bone, Um, again, Every type of subtype that you get of these cancers that occur in that age group, we have got a champion who works with me um, as experts re- uh, related to it. And that's just magnificent. It, it makes us better than anyone else. And it's and it's exciting because it says we we at UC Irvine take this really seriously.
0: Well, some of those late effects that um, I've learned about here, they could be, um, you were talking about the aspect of fertility, whether um, they're... Able to, to reproduce than after having been you know, slammed with uh, those um, kinds of treatments f- to cure the cancer, but there's also uh, high blood pressure, congestive heart failure. There is a, it's the um, the deadening of the nerve cells around. Well, is one case on the National Institutes of Health uh, website uh, the necrosis of the tissue around the bones where this young 32-year-old male surviving cancer has to worry about chronic pain for with his hips the rest of his life or what so these are these are all the kinds of aspects that you're taking up as you're saying then from day one curing the cancer while sort of shoring up what the other um, bodily functions are uh, how they're able to withstand the uh, the kind of cancer treatment so that it's a, a functioning system of, uh, of the body after the cancer is cured
1: right so th- so we look at all that up front. Uh, we try and mitigate to stop that happening when possible. It's not always possible to stop that happening, um, but that's really our goal. Our goal is to look at all of that and then to follow it to try and see again. My goal is to bring awareness. Now, one of the wonderful things we have at the university is we have a medical school, and we have m- medical students, and what I've done is also engaged All the way back to medical students, I believe that we will not be a, we will not understand the young adult cancer movement better unless unless we really engage the next generation of doctors. And one of the obligations of our medical school and our medical center and the university is, you know, we have three things that we talk about, discover, teach, and heal. Well, healing we do in every single day we're trying to do, but teach and discover it's important so my goal is to teach the medical students about about what's happening um, to this young adult and then asking them to ask their residents who are people in training to become specialists or to become internists and then to ask the attendings, who you know how to get everyone engaged in the picture so i've actually trying to grab this army of these young adults uh, you know people who are in that perfect age group. When we look at our medical students, they are the young adults who would be getting cancer, um, and and we try and engage them and say, help us get a way that our university is so sees the problem and therefore adds to the solution, uh, which is really what we're trying to do.
0: Have there been ever any uh, medical students enrolled who are actually the the patient, in <coughs> fact?
1: Well, we've had some medical students who've had cancers as young adults themselves who are, medical, who are now students and gone on to be doctors, but we haven't had a medical student diagnosed with cancer who's part of our team. Now, we did have a medical student many years ago um, who died, Joel Myers, and Joel Myers died of melanoma. The family helped create a... Um, Fund which I use, and actually combined with the Children's Hospital, run a program of trying to explain to young people the risks of the sun and melanoma, early detection. um, So, which is called the Spot a Spot program. But thank God we haven't had a medical student recently who's been diagnosed with cancer while being a medical student. But. They all know people and more importantly you can you can reach them. They're passionate, they're learning something new. And you, you can imagine when looking in the eyes and saying, Imagine God forbid that lump on your on your on your uh, arm is, is cancer. What would it do to your life? And they really do understand what we're doing. But our goal is to I wanna have them um be out there as the next generation of doctors who know about the young adults who can do better for the young adult patient population because that's what we need to do absolutely raise awareness uh, which is what you know, a lot of the, the actions we do will raise awareness now.
0: So the spot a <clears> spot <throat> program is something that is uh, internal to the the uh, the Chow Family Comprehensive Cancer is, Center. No,
1: it's it's, it's, a, it's a, actually it's a club on the main university campus and it is a club which was started by medical students we have some medical students involved i have a lot of undergrads i'm the faculty leader of the club <coughs> it is sponsored through children's hospital of orange county <coughs> excuse me i apologize and uh, we go out and in the last three years we've taught about 48,000 uh, high school juniors and seniors about early detection of melanoma and therefore awareness of their bodies. I call the part of the program Know Your Body. It is really important for young people to be empowered to, to say that they have, um, they, they can control their body and their diseases if they take it seriously. Um, that's what we want people to do. Um,
0: I'm wondering if there are... Various um, other arms in this venture that uh, I don't know why I'm thinking of Planned Parenthood, but other sorts of um, agencies and entities that have that that population seeing them and Planned Parenthood comes to mind because I know they they're very comprehensive in the kind of services that they're dispensing there, but it seems like 48,000 students in the high school level, and and then there's a a whole lot of others to to reach out to for continuing to develop that awareness, and I don't know it's part of the awareness for them to know that they have a role in sort of
1: yes, yeah, so the whole role is on. so one of the roles we do in in doing this is not only teaching them, but then I go back because I you know I'm an educator and, I, and I'm trying to think of myself as a scientist. I want to go back and tell them, go back to your family and ask them. By the way did you um, have your pap smear, mom? Did you have your mammogram? Dad, did you have your colonoscopy? Uncle Tom, did you look at that mole in your skin? So we we saying that the, the whole idea behind that program really is to make sure that they are, um, that they realize that their role is not just to know about themselves. Um, That's wonderful. You know, and so, I and again, that's what we do. We should be doing at the university. That's what we do do. How do we utilize? How do we teach health? And how do we bring it? So when I think of the young adult cancer movement, there are very few things that we can tell a young adult to stop them getting cancer as a young adult. We can tell them about the sun. We can tell them about having pap smears. Uh, we can make sure they have the hepatitis vaccines. But in reality, um, it is very difficult so our goal is to just raise awareness, and then do the best job we can. Um, the best jobs we can.
0: Well, I'm wondering what those uh, that are um, common types of cancer among this population. And I just want to step from aside a for those of you who've just joined us. We are uh, talking with Dr. Leonard Sender, an oncologist and director of the combined adolescent and young adult cancer program at UCI's uh, facility, and with a. Uh, Chalks Children's Hospital. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. Well, I want to know, though, how could, how would young people be able to do uh, testing to detect some of the other uh, the common types you're talking about? I don't know. Um, not all of these lend themselves to a, a regular kind of testing.
1: Well, they don't. That's the problem. So you, you hit it perfectly. Um, we can't cancer prevention that you read about you hear about has no role if you take take breast cancer the national cancer institute all these things you hear on the news tell you women should not have mammograms before age 40 well tell that to my 20 something year olds who got breast cancer my 30 year olds so there was no test for them Unfortunately, we've also gone and told everyone that mammograms are much better than doing breast self-exam, and we lost an opportunity to keep doing, making sure that people were doing their breast self-exam. Uh, now we need to, um, you know, we need to educate them. We, we joke um, that it's not a mammogram in the woman under 40, it's a handigram, we needed it so, and again, I think a lot of what we do, to be honest, um, is to try and educate through um, youthful ways. So we we try and make it fun and exciting. We um, don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, we, we understand the young adult uh, mindset, if you will, uh, what's really happening for the young adult.
0: But I am stumped, though, if the um, if the the hand uh, breast exam would still only cover the incidence of breast cancer. But there's all those others. I just um, I don't know where our awareness takes us to early detection. I tell
1: you, it, where awareness takes us to is what we teach is, you need to be aware of your body, and you need to take it seriously. So, new lump and new pain. Assistance,
0: something that's new, some sensation of, of right. fatigue. So
1: right. So they. if you have it and you go to the doctor, the problem is our young people go to the doctor, and they are insulted by the doctor. I says, Oh, there's nothing. Yes. There's nothing, and in reality, that's what we have to change. So what we try, what we need to try and teach them, and what we're hoping for, is that they learn that um, to speak up for themselves and to take ownership of it. And then that they learn um, to push their doctors and to keep going back if there's persistence. They've got a lump that's not going away, go back, um, talk to your doctor. Now, that's part of our education process we're doing with our medical students and our fellows is to try and teach them look, you don't want to be in that. Um, you
0: in, want to be the one, yeah. you don't want to be the clinician where. At a late phase, then there is a detection. Right. Yes. Well, that that is very particularly concerning. Um, and I'm just thinking also with this particular population, adolescents and young adults, there is so much happening that they don't even understand is going on with their body. So they have to distinguish between, uh, knowing a healthy, a sort of, um, a, you know, um, I want to say, adolescent, pubescent growth, and then hormonal balancing and, uh, and myelinating all their front lobe. I mean, all those things are happening. They have to know those things are not a pathology. But the, uh, So how would they distinguish a, a normal new sensation from a pathological? And that would really be, makes your work extremely interesting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well I, I hope that we're, um, I'm looking forward to having a chance to, to talk with some patients who can talk about what is it's called? Um, I want to uh, get the term here. It's uh, it's the um, I, I used to have it here. It's the um, the risks. of oh, the late effects. Uh, Though they will be able to talk about the late effects and okay. uh, other uh, matters of the uh, monitoring and surveilling all of these kinds of uh, health issues. Now, we, we've been mostly spending the, the latter part of this interview about detection, but then there is the matter of monitoring of a recurrent cancer once that patient's been cured, and that's part of what you're educating, I imagine, your patients as well as your medical students as to to serve the patients in that way. Right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Well, Leonard-Sander. You. You're uh, very kind uh, today to set aside valuable time. I know you're the man of the hour of the day of the week to keep this these young people, um, you know, protected from the next hazard and uh, for developing such a wonderful pedagogical system for young medical students. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for keeping up your good work. Thanks.
0: be right back after a brief break to talk to those very special handpicked three patients stay tuned Thank you for staying tuned. This is Ask a Leader. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, or the University of California Board of Regents. For this second half, I am delighted to bring on three courageous and enlightened patients of Dr. Leonard Sanders. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce, first there's Natalie Scavone Burgess, who is a Um, English composition uh, teacher at a local community college. She lives in Huntington Beach. She was first diagnosed with her colon cancer at the age of 34. She is now 36. My next guest is Becky Tahera. She's a resident of Yorba Linda, married, and has two daughters, one aged 18 and one 15. Uh, Her breast cancer was diagnosed when she was 36. Uh, a recurrence in when she was 40, she is now 41. And then our uh, third guest is Angelo Giuliano, who is the, um, he's the founder. I'm, let me backtrack. I just want to say that Becky Tejera has her own uh, beauty sal- hair salon, and that will be a, a primary focus of, um uh, parts of her survivor story here. Now, back to Angel Giuliano, who is the uh, founder and CEO of Point Media Live. He was diagnosed at the age of 29 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He is now age 31. He he has... Um, Navy experience and when he was launching his firm and he was just, just recently married at 29 was when his cancer was detected. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna find out how much these situations taught these three patients and how much they can teach us. Let's first talk about each one of you, uh, how your particular cancers, what they were and what, how they were detected. Let's start with Natalie Scaboni Burgess. Okay.
2: Uh, My cancer, colon cancer, was first detected, um, I was having uh, difficulty having bowel movements and then also blood in my stool when I could have a bowel movement, which led to um, a bunch of stool samples and tests and eventually led to a colonoscopy and upper and lower endoscopy. And my tumor was in my sigmoid colon, which is actually down low, and they could not get the scope past the tumor, so they biopsied it and uh, pretty much the next day I, I had had the results, and this also happened to be five
0: weeks before my wedding. Wow. And we'll we'll go back to that, um, what that timing meant in terms of your proactive um, response. So um, thank you very much. Becky Tahera, tell us about your breast cancer.
3: The first time I was diagnosed, um, I was 36, and the, the interesting part of that was, most of my gynecologists and stuff would feel lumps and so forth, and they'd say, oh, it's no big deal. They're just probably hormonal. Don't worry about it. Luckily, um, I was already seeing a breast disease doctor, and um, you know, I was being monitored because my mom had had breast cancer, and even though I don't have the gene, it was something that was just very important to me to just be persistent and, and make sure I'm okay. And then the second time I found it just – by seeing um, something under my skin, it looked like a marble, and I wouldn't accept that it was scar tissue.
0: Oh my, okay. Angelo Giuliano.
4: My my non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is actually a rare form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma called anaplastic large T-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, And the symptoms began with itching in my lower body. We couldn't really determine what was causing the itching Um, And from there, you know, a a lump had began to to grow underneath my left arm. Um, I went to the Internet and combined the two, itching and um, infected lymph node, and um, all the cancer sites popped up. And after that, I immediately called the doctor, and it was diagnosed within three days.
0: And you already knew the doctor. He was... Uh, bumping you up for some uh, pro bono work in right. a campaign he was doing pertaining mm. to his practice uh, to, to this, whole, this whole movement of cancer detection with young adults. And so you were sort of, uh, you were in a very a rare situation where uh, you thought, well, wait a minute, he's just doing this for me. But it turned, I mean, this is not the Leonard Sander promotional show, but we just can't help but doing that because of the, the this default of of generosity in his practice. But anyway, so he was able to just uh, jump on it, and you weren't you weren't sure if it was friendship or just you realized, as the patients in here with you, uh, that everybody
4: you, receives the same red car- carpet treatment.
0: It's amazing. So um, I want to talk to each one of you about. So he you, we you, you just listened to his interview about surviving that and how you're keeping, uh, you're monitoring things, how you're keeping your very systems intact. So what was very particular about Natalie's situation is you're just a, you've just pl- you planned the wedding, it's high stress, and, every, and there's, everything's rotating around that plan, but something derailed. You're thinking with, oh, you've got to focus on a major health uh, crisis. So uh, you had to, um, the presence of mind, and perhaps you could tell us why you could think about that, is considering your fertility once you were going to be treated. This was actually brought
2: to my attention as soon as I had my, my diagnosis. Um, my GI that did the colonoscopy sent me to a genetic specialist, and that was very fortunate. Um, as you can imagine, my brain was just swirling. I had so much going on in there. It was hard to really even process. and. One of the best things I did is my husband went with me, and my mom also went with me, because when you have so much going through your mind, it's really hard to not only process, but to remember and write everything down. And all of that information is flying hard and fast. But um, it was the genetic specialist who was kind of mapping out my family history. And I do not have a family history of colon cancer. And since then, I've had all of the genetic testing that's available done, and I do not have a genetic marker. So um, we've concluded I've been struck by lightning, basically. But it was in that session that the genetic specialist mentioned you may want to consider fertility preservation. And as a woman who's about to get married, that's probably one of the more shocking things to discover is, oh, my gosh, this could affect my chance to start a family. So um, I immediately went into the research of, of doing that. And we opted... Uh, to do the fertility preservation, and I actually gave myself my first fertility injection after the ceremony, before the reception on the day of my wedding.
0: That amazes me. Each time you go over that with me, and now the listeners are hearing this. It's just stri- simply amazing. Well, we know in in Becky Tejera's case, you you already had started your family. So with the the initial detection and the recurrence later on, the it was not such an issue for you
3: no um having having two children even though my husband and i had just gotten married um sorry a little emotional six months before i i was diagnosed the first time um we had chosen not to have any more kids he already had two kids i have two kids and we figured our dogs were good enough so um you know we're we're happy with that but um you know yeah we don't we don't need more kids,
0: <laughs> so that's that's what was different with in An- Angelo's case you had a wholly different situation from both of the women here. Please talk to our listeners about sure, that sure i was I was
4: newly married and um uh you know Leah and I my wife leah um and I hoped to start a family unfortunately um the cancer had progressed too much at that point for me to um to sperm bank. Um, so we're just now left hoping for a miracle that something might happen um, where we can have children naturally. Um, otherwise, we will look into other options, whether that be adoption um, or uh, a, a, a donor from a family member. Um, yeah.
0: That's tough. Yeah,
4: it is tough. It's
0: tough. It's tough, but it's tough with the lot of lot of pause after that and I, I, um, I want to really take stock of that um, that situation and I don't know that in the um, there there was could have been any kind of intervention for you that's it's something that could be a part of the, the protocol for treating something as aggressive as your kind of cancer that um, that would have given you the options that Natalie had in uh, her less uh, aggressive one, aggressive wedding planning, but, <laughs> but I, I don't know if that you know that protocol is something you are able to feed back into the system and saying you know we've got to stake out this these kinds of questions to up be, front.
4: Yeah, to be quite honest, I'm just happy to be here. Um, my my cancer is so aggressive; had it been left untreated, yes. uh, within months, I could have I could have died. Um, so. Um, you know, I count my blessings, um, and yes. um, if if children aren't in the future, no, for us, our own biological children, um, I'm thrilled to adopt. So it's not like um, the cancer is going to prevent Lee and I from having a family.
0: Well, for those listeners who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming to you live on the web. KUCI.org. My three guests are Natalie uh, uh, Scavone-Burgess and Becky Tejera and Angelo Giuliano, all three um, cancer survivors who have been treated by Dr. Lendersender at UCI. They're teaching us about what they've been learning extensively in all dimensions of their cancer detection and treatment and monitoring and Other and many survivor issues. So I wanted to um, have now, uh, Becky Tehera has a good deal to say about what it is to advocate for your health because the safety net isn't there, folks. The safety net is how quick on your feet, how how unflappable you are for making your case, and I want Becky to talk to that today.
3: I think one of the things that that I you know when claudia and i were talking originally it i really want to say you know don't take oh you're probably fine don't don't take oh ah, it's probably nothing you're you're young it's no big deal it no if you think something's wrong do something about it keep pushing whether it's if you have an HMO insurance and you have to go to the insurance company and say you know my doctor's not doing anything Find somebody that's going to listen to you. Get a different doctor. Do something, but don't just go, oh, okay. Um, had I not listened to myself and listened to my mom's doctor and just, you know, my gut was telling me, stay on it. So, you know, I kept doing that. Had I not, I kept t- being told, "No, nah, you know, you don't need a mammogram until you're 40. Your mom was postmenopausal when she had breast cancer. You know, you're going to be fine. Had I listened to that, I would not be here today probably. So uh, really, stay on it. Be persistent. Don't take no for an answer.
0: And, and Natalie, you also had some experience with some persistence, too. And and, and you're you're going to be seen next Monday, too, yes. you are saying. Yeah,
2: I see Dr. Sender next Monday. And um, I see Dr. Sender every three months. And, and I will say it is very hard because cancer is such a disru- disruption of your life. Mm-hmm. um. You know everything that you consider normal, and you know now I look at normal as such a subjective term, but um, it's totally disrupted. And I'm kind of at the point where, like, gosh, I don't want to go into another doctor's appointment. But you know now it's every three months as opposed to every week. But um, oh, I did, <laughs> I did run into one issue when I was looking um, for a fertility doctor, and. Um, This doctor actually told me that if I chose to do this and didn't do chemo, which was never a question in my mind, that I was going to die. And to be told that in a doctor's appointment when you're pretty much asking for help is is the worst thing, uh, you know, to experience. And he also told me that he was 100% certain that I would be infertile by the time I finished my chemo treatment. And as Dr. Sender um, helped me understand afterward, as I was frantic and just, you know, hysterical was that that's not true. There's no evidence to, you know, to prove that. And we're all individual cases. So um, imagine being told that as you're trying to look for somebody for help, and I just kind of basically said, you know, I don't. You're a doctor, big deal. I'm going to go find somebody who can help me, and I and I did, and I was very happy. And uh, we have 16 embryos that we can use if we need to.
0: Oh, hello to those embryos. That's right. <laughs> hello to them. <laughs> and the, the Mother's Day coming up here. Uh, and Angelo, did you want to talk to something about that? About I
4: mean, you. Well, the funny. Leonard
0: Center was uh, advocating for you in the Correct. beginning, so that was different for you. And
4: all of these symptoms were present. Um, You know, I had the itching and I had this lump on my uh, under my left auxiliary, uh, my left armpit. And I was that person who said, I can't possibly have cancer. There is no way that I have cancer. You're a Navy veteran. Nothing touches you. (laughs) And I I just started working with Dr. Leonard Sender and his nonprofit organization, um, building awareness for young adults and adolescents. And I just thought, there's no way that I have cancer. And it was my wife who pushed me. a woman, there's a factor here, I'm listening. (laughs) Um, And and she insisted, right? In fact, that evening when I had looked on the computer, when I looked up um, uh, swollen lymph node and itching and the cancer sites popped up, immediately Leah made me call Lenny, who was at his daughter's graduation in Boston. Um, And from there, he organized everything to to make sure that I was in uh, the hospital on Monday. For uh, blood work Tuesday, fine needle biopsy. Um, Wednesday, I had the uh, the lymph nodes removed. And Wednesday night, Lenny called me and told me I had cancer. And that following week, I started treatment.
0: So I think the the success story in terms of how you're ma- able to shore up everything you can, make the most of of your your own situations, your 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 vital dispositions. Otherwise, that you had an on. Uh, care provider whether it was the uh, fertility clinic um, counselor genetic counselor it was uh, an oncologist who uh, you know understood the, the the you know the consequences the, the aspects of what you were presenting there it it so I guess it's 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 luck it's random folks yes that,
4: but I couldn't agree more with Becky when she says do not um, take lightly these these symptoms I mean make sure you go in and have them checked out
3: yeah, yeah don't, it, go, go don't let a doctor dismiss you. If, if it's something that's really, you know, eating at you, don't let them dismiss you. Seriously, do something about it.
2: And I wanted to add that um, my, my process was also very quickly. As soon as I had the diagnosis, I had an appointment with a surgeon. I was diagnosed on a Friday. and an appointment with the surgeon on Monday morning. So it's that idea of especially since we're young adults, um, moving quickly and not, not waiting because, you know, waiting, I think, is the worst thing you can do.
0: Well, these are all real important takeaway messages. And I know that you also have um, uh, some messages to impart to us here. The three of you are just incredibly, just most robust, uh, standout human beings here. And I think, uh, like myself, I think the people with whom you are, uh, you know, uh, uh, amidst, that they would have no idea what you're processing, both in your mind and your body. And I want, let's start with Angela to talk about What's is processing in your mind for us to really get an idea, a privileged idea about how you've changed with working with this diagnosis?
4: Well, I I think originally, um, you know, you, you have a I think everybody would agree you have a new appreciation for life. Um, you you re- everything comes into perspective. Um, you value life so much more. Um, through the process, you know, when I first found out I had cancer, you know, I wanted to, to fight this and I, I knew that it would, you know, it wouldn't beat me. Uh, post-treatment, I was just talking to Becky earlier about um, the fact that now I feel like I'm 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 being chased by death in a way. Um, and it, it's bothersome, you know, it, it wears on me. Every six months I go in for a scan and every, about the sixth month, I become very concerned about anything that's happening with my body, as you should be, as Becky mentioned. Um, But I I almost feel like a hypochondriac. I don't want to go see Dr. Sender because I feel like he's gonna think the same thing, which he doesn't, by the way. And I just recently actually had a little scare. I went in for some blood work and my levels were high. And um, uh, my scans, my PET scans showed some areas that lit up. Um, I had a... uh, a lump in the back of my throat and luckily it looks like it's not cancer it's something that they're going to monitor um, in the next few months um, but you know it, it scared the uh, the, it's... the daylight out of me <laughs> um, and so it's it's tough you know for the rest of my life I'm going to have to be worried that this cancer that I had may return and um it's going to always be on my mind and so it's you know it's it's very difficult to live with
0: it's difficult to live with and it taught you you were saying earlier it's also taught you about how to live every day you're you're an Correct. aggressively uh, uh an aggressive entrepreneur in your advertising business so you're sort of
4: like well, seizing this for me i mean i i i realized that i may not be here um long, and I just wanted to make sure that my wife, Leah, and our family was taken care of um, if something were to happen to me. So that's where that drive came from.
0: Well, I want to also, Becky has some things to say, too, about um, how she was going through the treatments. Now, she was, um, she, as I said, she is the owner of a salon in the Yorba Linda area where she lives, and uh, she she had a very, um, dis- a very um, specific way of she wanted to deal with her what this, the her vocation, how the vocation and her medical profile came together, and her statement about how she wanted to, to lord on what, who she was as a person, and what, and she can teach us about what uh, this decision meant and how people have reacted to um, how she's comported herself since her treatment.
3: Well, the interesting thing is, you know, many people, everybody has their own opinion of how to handle cancer and chemo and losing your hair. And, you know, all of us, you know, we can be told, oh, you're going to go through surgery, it's going to take you this long to heal, and you're like, okay, I've got it. And you're going to have this medicine get pumped through you, and it's going to make you sick, or it's going to make you feel bad, and you're, okay, I've got it. And then they go, oh, and by the way, you're going to lose your hair. And women, especially, were on the floor. No, I'm not going to lose my hair. I can't deal with this. It's an awful thing to think. I identify with my hair. How we describe people is by their hair first, all of that. And I went, okay. So I went through all of that, and then I finally realized I don't have to be identified by my hair. I'm a hairdresser. I can be identified by who I am. So for me, I didn't want to wear a wig because I couldn't. Look at myself every day in light of myself that cancer was not happening again, that um, I wasn't going through chemo, and that I was going to stand strong and stand firm in how I felt about life. I don't think that everybody should have that attitude. I don't think that everybody should do it the way I do it. This is totally personally how I needed to deal with it, and I, I believe everybody needs to deal with it however they feel is best for them. So my clients would come in and and they and some of them, you know, wanted me to cover my head up. I had I had a few clients that bought me things and, um, it, you know, some of them would come in, see me and just break down. And I'm devastated. I'm devastated. And I tell them, it's OK. I'm not. Here's a Kleenex. I'm going to go mix your color up and I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> you know, and I just I had to portray that just because I'm bald, it doesn't mean I'm dead. I'm alive, and I wanted to make a statement for all of us that go through this that just because you see somebody bald, it doesn't mean that they're dying, or it just means that it's a bump in the road, and it's just a new look, and that's all it is, and, um, you know, I wanted to try and minimize it, and and I guess I kind of maximize the shock that way, but, um, you know, it's a statement.
0: Natalie, did you want to add to that?
2: Actually, somebody said something to me a long time ago, and this experience really brought it to light. And it was always be kind to people because you never know what they're going through. And those are such wise words because I mean, if you were to walk in here right now and look at all three of us, you probably you wouldn't know. You would not know. And um, I was sharing with Becky earlier. I didn't lose all my hair. Um, I was very fortunate. Yeah, it thinned out quite a bit, but I didn't lose it all. And I actually wore hats more than I did my wigs. But um, most people, had they not known what was going on, I mean, I actually continued to teach. Um, I have a full time teaching job as a prof- as an English professor, and I taught um, I taught an underload my first um, semester when I started the chemo. But by the second semester, when I was finishing. Um, I taught a full load. And oh,
0: amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't know, but Dr. Sender allowed me that so I wouldn't lose that part of my identity so long as my students would cooperate and keep me healthy. And bless their hearts, if they were sick, they did not come to class. Or when they came back from being sick, they would wear a, a mask in class to protect me. And
0: you were able, did you lay that out for them? That I this did. Is the way to... I had
2: to walk in the first day of class and introduce the syllabus and, that's oh, bad. by the way.
0: So that's another takeaway message is that, uh, you need to be clear. Lay it out with everybody. Yes. What What's the um, the situation so that the, the other people can do their part? Um, because as as we're all noticing in this studio, that it's a it, there's no way we'd know. Um, I we have just a few minutes left in the show. I want to remind everybody that we're talking with three cancer survivors today in the studio. That's Natalie Scavone. Burgess, Becky Tejera, and Angelo Giuliano, uh, all of them living in Orange County, and w- they worked through, not just with their treatments, uh, working through their treatments, but they were, literally, they were employed as they were being treated for their respective cancers. And now they're at age uh, 36, 41, and 31. I mean, th- this this is really, really a very a young age to be faced with an, uh, an, a rest-of-life kind of monitoring, advocating um i i don't even know where else to what to add to that but we've been uh, we've been hearing um from them so i think we the takeaway is there any other takeaway message that you have for us to um understand how we approach a cancer survivor respectfully
1: hmm.
2: i I almost think, I almost took it as my responsibility um, because so many people wanted to help and it's it's so overwhelming that I really, I was direct, Um, it would be really great if you could make a meal for me tonight Mm -hmm. or um, I need a ride to the doctor or if I could specifically tell somebody what to do, then I got what I needed and they felt like they helped. So I almost took it upon myself to be
0: direct. So there's none of those awful, awkward, embarrassing. Yes. Well, uh, let me know if I could do anything for you. But right. so yes, Becky, you were going to say.
3: Yeah, I th- I think definitely that that's uh, an important thing is is being very direct, stating what you want, and letting people know. I will let you know. I promise I will let you mm-hmm. know. And don't
0: worry. And you have the, your clients were they as respectful of not bringing in their uh, their uh, fever or their flu <laughs> symptoms? Well, that as Natalie was talking about her students, was that something you could make, post very clearly with your clients? Most most
3: of my clients understood. The funniest part of the whole thing was my staff was amazing as well as my business partner. They both, um, you know, all of them, they would would say, you know, oh, and by the way, if you're sick, please cancel your appointment or go to somebody else.
0: Okay, so that's good. Let's give you one last word, and then we got to close the show.
4: Angel. I was just going to say that I couldn't agree more with uh, Natalie and Becky. Okay. Well, we uh, didn't want to wrap this up so hurriedly, but it is now the
0: close of the hour. I want to thank you all for coming, Natalie Scavone-Burgess, Becky Tejera, and Angel Giuliano, who are uh, surviving, respectively, colon cancer, breast cancer, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I want to wish the three of you all the best in realizing all this potential that you're showing us today, in teaching, learning more about yourselves, teaching us even more, and that um, and, uh, your community carries you on the shoulders for the rest of the hall. We'll do our part here. Thank you, and maybe we can all get together and. Let's say a year, year and a half. Okay,
4: sounds great. Sounds good. Thanks, thank Glad you go. so
0: much for coming on, on Ask a Leader. Um, and I want to thank Dr. Leonard Sender for being on earlier. We'll be back um, next week with some programming dealing with the upcoming uh, primary. I want to have Neil Kelly, the director of the Orange County Registrar of Voters and uh, the seven, the sixty district, uh, running in the Democratic uh, primary. Julio Perez. So we'll stay tuned and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening all.